Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. We were honored to have Ajma Ahmadi join us in the pod. Ajmal is the former governor of the Central Bank of Afghanistan, and previous to that, he was the Minister of Commerce and Industry for the Afghan government. Juan and I asked Ajmal about his decision processes as the governor of a national bank and how he worked to build the country, including stabilizing the Afghani currency, digitizing money transfers, and creating bank accounts for each citizen. We also discussed his decision-making and his final days in Afghanistan between the first province falling to the Taliban and his eventual exit from Kabul. Ajmal, welcome to the Value Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, can you please provide us with a little bit of your background? Um, how, where were you born? Where did you study? And how did you end up running the Central Bank of Afghanistan? Thank you very much for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Ajmal Amadi. Uh, I'm the former Central Bank Governor of Afghanistan. Um, and my, I guess, career path took me, it wasn't a typical linear career path. Um, I worked in economic development uh, for a few years uh, after university. I came um, and received a dual degree from Harvard uh, studying international development and business. And afterwards worked for a few years as uh, various in various investment roles. Um, and, and then uh, after approximately eight years, um, returned back to Afghanistan uh, and began uh, working in a series of roles, first as economic advisor to the president, uh, then as minister of industry and commerce, and finally as central bank uh, governor. I'm a little bit uh, curious on what, um, what was the main driver of your decision to go back to Afghanistan? Um, were you born in Afghanistan and then you moved to study in the U.S., or were you born in the U.S. and, and you had connection with Afghanistan? Uh, no. So I was born in Kabul, uh, and my family left the country um, when the communists took over. Uh, so we immigrated, as many families did, uh, first to Pakistan, uh, then to Germany, um, and, and then finally to the U.S. Um, and, and so growing up, uh, I, you know, as, as I studied, I guess, in university uh, and did applications for graduate school, uh, it was my intention to pursue a, a career in economic development and, of course, um, in Afghanistan in particular. I had the opportunity to work in Afghanistan in 2003 uh, with the Minister of Finance at that time, uh, who later became uh, president of the country. And so um, that that's a little background in terms of uh, my personal decision-making process. 
teasing up quite nicely to the next question because we look at making decisions in uncertain circumstances as part of this podcast, which is certainly something that you had to tackle during your tenure uh, in the Afghanistan government. One of the things you did achieve during your tenure was the stabilization of the currency uh, in a way that's kind of making the uncertain certain. How did you manage to filter out what could be an increasingly chaotic atmosphere around you as you try to deliver those kind of targets in a national bank? So at the central bank, um, we have a inflation mandate, um, inflation targeting mandate, as uh, most central banks do around the world. And um, so, so that was the key component. And so when you take a look at our reaction function, um, one of the key components of, or one of the key drivers of inflation is really currency movements. Uh, because Afghanistan imports um, so much, we, have, we, we ran a very large trade deficit. Uh, there's a very high inflation pass-through coming through. So, so we, we don't explicitly target the currency rate, but we monitor it very closely on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we have a few monetary policy tools um, that we utilize, um, including FX auctions and, and DAB note auctions, uh, in order to um, ensure our, our monetary policy targets are met. Uh, so that's the <clears throat> maybe typical um, uh, framework that a central bank uses and that we utilized. Uh, as, as conditions began to worsen in Afghanistan, um, there was increasingly very high political uncertainty and, and very high security uncertainty. And so I do remember explicitly in, in, in thinking through this and, and considering the reaction function or how it should the re, how the reaction function should be of the central bank that I didn't want to introduce um, macroeconomic stability as well into that picture. Um, because there was already so much uncertainty uh, going on. And so at that point, um, we took steps to reduce currency volatility. Uh, and, and again, the, the purpose was to keep inflation low. And at the end of the day, we, we were able to keep inflation uh, in single digits, low single digits. We were able to keep currency volatility quite low. Um, so up to the end, currency didn't appreciate by more than 5%. And uh, you know, a- as we were doing this, you know, you have to balance a competing set of objectives. So, on the one hand, it was re- reduction of currency volatility, and on the other, you know, we keep an eye on our international reserves uh, and other indicators to make sure that um, the stability on the currency side doesn't deplete our international reserves. And and at the end of the day, I think I can say, look, currency volatility remained low, and we were left with. Um, more than $9 billion in international reserves, uh, which if you take a look at it from a, um, uh, any of the common reserve um, uh, metrics, uh, I think it was sufficient. So it represents approximately 14 months of international reserves um, or about 50% of GDP, which are quite large figures. Uh, so, so in sum, I'd say, you know, when you take a look at the situation of Afghanistan, it wasn't really a, a macroeconomic crisis. You know, you have that in uh, Syria or you have that in uh, Lebanon or, or a number of different countries. Um, but we were able to maintain that macroeconomic stability. Uh, unfortunately, the political and security conditions um, continue to deteriorate. 
in an environment where you are building a, a whole institutional system from scratch um, and where there is a lot of informality in the economy and maybe there is too many regions um, which might be disconnected from the central government, how, how useful or how powerful were the tools that you had at your disposal in the central bank to take action? So um, if you move interest rates, would that be felt um, across the economy? Would, would the normal person in the streets um, feel some of those tools uh, or the impact of some of those tools? So we, ha we had a very low uh, financial inclusion um, uh, rate. Only 12% of Afghanistan is banked. So I think that's one um, metric that limited uh, the power of our interventions. And the second metric is uh, the, the high level of dollarization in the economy. We, we had approximately 65% dollarization rate within the economy. So monetary effectiveness is, is also reduced in such an environment. Uh, and then third is, you know, the, the ability of um, the administration to implement decisions as well. So I think that was a, a third limiting factor uh, when we took policy decisions. That being said, um, uh, we had very good and frequent interactions with uh, the 12 commercial banks in Afghanistan. And we had a system uh, which heavily relied on money exchangers, or we call them sarafa, uh, who participated in these three times a week um, currency auctions where we sold dollars. And so those were, those were mechanisms that I think, despite the low... Um, Financial inclusion rate and high dollarization rate. I think those were some of the some of the institutional setups that helped improve uh, the effectiveness of central bank policies within Afghanistan. Um, I, I guess one question that many people might might have is, um, and I heard that today from someone when we were um, doing the preparation for for today's session. He was kind of saying that. When you're building a country, those institutions need to be built from um, from the base, from within. And and in the case of Afghanistan, the many of the institutions were being built with the help of the Western world. And and there was this impression, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, that may, maybe many people didn't end up buying into those institutions. Would you say that's a that's a fair um, assessment of what might have happened? Um, it, it's a fair point. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I remember being taught at the Kennedy School is, you know, cut and paste institutions perhaps uh, don't work in, in local environment. There has to be adapted for the local context. And um, I, I think the institutional setup of the central bank um, did not um, cause too many issues. I think it, 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 it was based on international norms, but, um, uh, but for the most part, uh, it didn't cause undue tension. Um, th there was one area that I'll get back to that, that I think caused tension. Um, and, and more broadly speaking, I think uh, th there were questions, and some people have raised this, 
whether the political institutional setup uh, was the appropriate one for Afghanistan and whether um, that setup over centralized power or, or concentrated power too much in the president um, or the constitutional makeup uh, w- was appropriate. So I think those are maybe questions that will take a little bit more time and analysis to figure out. Um, going back to the central bank, I think one issue that um, caused tension um, during my my tenure uh, was the fact that um, the banking sector provided very little um, very little uh, loans or or, or um, financing for the agricultural sector, mm-hmm. and so given that the agricultural sector is is very large, maybe perhaps 60% of uh, Afghans worked in the agricultural sector. Uh, I saw it as a disconnect that the banking sector provided essentially um, no loans to the sector. And one of the reasons was that back in 2003, uh, the international institutions uh, promoted um, the closing of a legacy agricultural bank that existed in Afghanistan. And when I brought up the the question of whether we should open a new agricultural bank or support agricultural lending at, at higher levels, there was there tended to be a lot of pushback um, uh, from international stakeholders. And I think that's one thing that always comes to mind when I think of the institutional setup and, and whether it was appropriate, at least for uh, the banking sector of Afghanistan. So in this podcast, we are always interested in understanding the process built behind the decision-making framework. In your role, what does prioritization look like when there is an ever-present risk of war approaching your work? And how do you approach provinces or regions that are in different stages of the conflict? So I think that's an important question. Um, So in in, uncertain times, you definitely have to take uh, decisions more quickly. And what I always think about um, in in that type of environment is... um, is in terms of content and in terms of process. Um, so I'll give I'll give you a specific example. Um, in particular, uh, during the past few months before Kabul fell, um, there was obviously increasing risk uh, in provinces throughout Afghanistan. And so one of the first things I did was to create a provincial committee uh, within the central bank, and that was comprised of. The heads of departments of of, dif- of different departments, and so we would get together on a quarterly basis and discuss, and focus more on what's happening in the provinces. And, and as things deteriorated even more, you know, I created a um, a, a smaller committee um, comprised of just my the head of provincial affairs and, and the head of banking operations at the central bank. And I increased the frequency of meetings. So we at first met on a weekly basis, and then at, towards the end, we met on a daily basis. And so as, you know, I think it, going back to your question, as you see risk increasing, I think your priorities have to shift. And I think you have to change or create structures um, that are ad hoc sometimes, but that are um, allow you to make quicker decisions in, in, in the face of greater uncertainty. So, you know, in these smaller committees, what we, what we did is in, in the content um, was that I asked my team to develop a, a map of Afghanistan and color code it based on risk. And then next to it, you know, we had a table with the amount of dollars and the amount of Afghanis held in each of our provincial branches. And so on a daily basis, we would monitor those levels 
and based on the risk assessment, uh, which which was subjective, but based on our internal um, analysis, we, we would uh, decrease uh, dollar Afghani limits held in each of those provinces. And so that was something that we did on a daily basis towards the end, and sometimes even multiple times per day uh, towards, towards the very end. And I think the process was successful in the sense that um, no dollars uh, fell to the Taliban until the very end, of course. Um, and and uh, the local currency deposits were also held very secure. Yes, probably as a, as a follow-up, probably on your regional approach, and if we walk back a bit, obviously, before the Taliban's encroachment, uh, one of the projects you were working on was obviously more inclusion within the wider system on a national level, and that included getting more people bank accounts. Um, obviously, there's probably different levels of, of infrastructure throughout the country. Did you take different regional approaches in trying to include more people within the central bank and its activities? Yeah, one of the one of the main longer term or medium term projects um, that I tried to put forward at the central bank was to increase financial inclusion. As I mentioned earlier, financial inclusion is very low in Afghanistan, only about twelve percent, and uh, typical methods to increase financial inclusions, I, I think, wouldn't have worked. So typically you would want to uh, see more banks, uh, open more bank branches in more provinces or more rural areas, um, or find other ways to provide banking services in such areas. But given the security framework and risks in Afghanistan and the higher costs associated with those risks, I think it would have been difficult to expand the branch network for, for banks. And that's what we saw. Most of the banks tend to operate only within the major cities. So, you know, thinking creatively about this, um, we take, we, we um, prioritized um, uh, technological innovations. And so here, um, you know, what's commonly called mobile money initiatives is something that we took a look at. Um, and we actually created a very strong, robust framework um, that made significant progress uh, during my tenure. So uh, on the one hand, we were able to connect the central bank, and what we had was a central bank switch here. We were able to connect uh, the central bank through the switch uh, with all 12 commercial banks electronically, uh, as well as um, the major telecom companies, four or five telecom companies. And what that allowed us to do was for the first time uh, was to uh, do interbank wholesale payments. Uh, so, for example, a person previously, if they were banking at uh, one bank, would have to cash out of that account. And to pay another person at another bank, they would have to physically take that cash and deposit at that other bank. And so with this new system, they were able to say, you know, I'm a customer at AIB, I'd like to send my customer or my this amount of money to a customer at Bank B, and they were able to do that electronically. Uh, so that's something that you have very common in other countries, but it wasn't established till the last few months, until um, December of 2020, we established that. And so we saw volumes uh, and transaction volumes increase significantly once that system was established. We then connected with all the telecom companies, and the goal there was to allow for um, mobile money payments. Um, this has uh, been popularized in, in East Africa and been quite successful, and we were able to do that as well. Uh, and approximately one to two months before Kabul fell, uh, we created the payment system uh, 
by which a user could use a USSD code, uh, so star 246, for example, and send um, uh, at any amount of money uh, from their own bank account uh, to uh, another bank account or to a mobile wallet. And so, you know, I think uh, I'd say even globally, that, that was one of the most advanced systems um, that was implemented by, by a central bank. So we're quite proud of that. And the, the following step then was uh, using the system to create a mobile uh, wallet for everyone in Afghanistan. And so we were in the process of doing all this when, when of course, things fell apart. I would like to go back to one of the topics you mentioned before when you made a reference to a lack of agricultural financial products being developed in the country and the impact that might have had over time. The question that I want to ask is the role that opium, opium plays within the Afghan economy, given how profitable it is for rural farmers and its use as a safety net. Was there any incentives to seek new crops, forms of employment? Was there a formalization of the profits from the industry? This is a question that is close to my heart because I am Colombian and my country has been dealing with a similar challenge for many decades now. Um, so opium is, is uh, a very large crop in Afghanistan. I believe Afghanistan now uh, represents somewhere around 90% of global, global opium production in the world. And so it, it's an important uh, crop uh, that has to be acknowledged. And, uh, you know, I, I think the reason is, is that one, it's profitable, but, but also it, it's also sustainable in, in an area perhaps where um, water resources are low. It tends to be um, it tends to be able to be sustainable even even if if rainfall, for example, is less than expected. So for a farmer, that tends to be quite important that the crops don't um, don't die out during your harvest. So uh, that that's an important consideration. Um, in, in terms of um, the value as well. Um, some people have uh, estimated that farm gate values is uh, anywhere. F I, I put the figure around 1 billion. Others have put it higher, maybe 1.5 to 2. Um, but the amount has been growing. I think there's uh, approximately 250,000 hectares that were grown um, on average over the past few years. And so <clears throat> when you look at that figure, um, you know, you have to acknowledge it's it's an important crop. It's a large crop in Afghanistan, and there were various attempts to try to reduce the volume grown. So, uh, the international community was heavily involved, um, especially in the earlier days. And I think there have been a, um, references to to their efforts in various books where um, one uh, they discussed. Um, uh, spraying the opium crops. Uh, and I think it was done in some areas. I believe that was also done in Colombia, um, but it wasn't pursued because I think it would have run counter to the counterinsurgency campaign that they were trying to pursue in Afghanistan. Um, there were others um, such as the donor agencies who uh, tried to promote alternative crops. Uh, so whether that's cotton, whether that's um, uh, dried fruits and nuts, uh, whatever the crop may be, um, they, they, there were various attempts at promoting it. But I, I think it goes back to that earlier comment I made, which, you know, I, I think there, there wasn't, for example, an agricultural bank. There, there wasn't an ecosystem, a supporting ecosystem for those initiatives. And so there was various initiatives to try to grow alternative crops. 
for the most part, they, they failed. And so opium production continues to remain quite high. And until there's, um, uh, you know, a, a more targeted, um, uh, you know, institutions geared towards the agricultural sector, uh, I think that we won't see a change. And I think you'll continue to see opium production remain high in Afghanistan. The Taliban have suggested that they would uh, prohibit the growth, um, uh, but it remains to be seen whether they will be able to implement that. Uh, I think that's the case in Colombia, where there have been many attempts through many different decades to try to incentivize people to move away from or to move into different sorts of crops. But the profitability that you find in in the in the kind of stuff that they grow, which is not legal, is just so high that it's just the economics of any other crop compared to what they are doing. It's just very difficult to replace. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, some people have floated the idea of, of legalization, whether it's Colombia or whether it's in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, in some sense, uh, perhaps consideration should be given for those type of uh, initiatives to see if they're possible. Yeah. Uh, just to, to guess, going to go back to, to the Taliban, um, did you find that working at the gate at the bank with any of the kind of instruments or the monetary policies you had at your disposal, were they used at all in assisting in anti-Taliban efforts or in resisting the Taliban from a country level? Um, so, so the the central bank, as as most central banks in the world, we we um, you know we are part. Um, or we comply with global standards, uh, global anti-money laundering and terrorist financing uh, frameworks um, that are defined by um, the Financial Action Task Force or FATF. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's something that, that we did from the outset. Um, uh, and Afghanistan was actually uh, complied um, and, and did well on, on those uh, assessments. So the FATF we, we were on the gray, gray list, um, I think prior to 2017, uh, FATF, um, you know, they do evaluations and, and I believe around 2017 or 18, Afghanistan was removed from the gray list and put on the white list. And so we had a very high track record. We had uh, financial intelligence teams uh, and others ensuring um, that we met global standards in regarding to AML CFT standards. Um, so, of course, uh, up among the lists or within the lists of, uh, that we had to screen against were, were um, either Taliban members or ISIS members, Daesh members, uh, or others um, who, who could have used the financial sector um, you know, to support the, their own programs. Uh, so, so I think that's the primary method through which... Um, central bank um, uh, uh, work to limit uh, terrorist financing. Um, the fall of the Afghan government was so quick that took the whole world by surprise. And history books teaches that in every chaotic circumstance, information tends to be unreliable and chaotic. We can think of many situations one can be where the uncertainty is at its highest. What was your decision-making process that led you to decide decide it was time to leave? 
Well, <laughs> I guess in some ways my decision process wasn't very good because I was, uh, uh, you know, still at my desk on the morning that Kabul fell. So, uh, uh, so I think um, perhaps I had too much optimism uh, embedded in, in in my decision making process. But I think the the key point is, I did say this to my staff uh, as cities began to fall: is that in such situations you can't. Um, project out linearly. You can't say, well, you know, it took five days for this to happen. So therefore it'll take five days for another city to fall. In, in these kinds of situations, we tend to move from a sort of a lin- linear paradigm to, you know, exponential paradigm. So it, it becomes very nonlinear very quickly. Um, and, and things uh, as they did fell apart very quickly. Um, so I think that's something, uh, you know, as, as you said, uh, thinking about decision-making processes or understanding the context, um, that's useful. You have to kind of look at the situation and say, okay, is, is this becoming a discontinuous or nonlinear process? Are things falling apart very quickly? And, and so what should I be doing at that time? And the amazing thing is when you're living through it is it happens much more quickly than you even expect, even if you accept that it's nonlinear. Um, I mean, it was, again, 10 days or 11 days between the fall of the first provincial capital to the last. And every single day, something is changing and you're trying to react. But, you know, you, you, you sometimes are always one step behind actual events. Um, so uh, so I, I, I think for, for that one, I'm not... Um, I'm not exactly sure if I have the right answer, but you know, the 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 decision making process that led me to leave on the last day, I guess once I once I uh, <laughs> once I did decide or once I did realize where events were going, um, one of the things I did is uh, I was talking to my security staff, and I think they also felt or they provided information that indicated they thought it would take longer for the Taliban to come. And so one of the things I did was reach out to to more people and essentially broaden my information network. Instead of getting information from one source, I said, look, I, I think I have to get information from you know 10 to 20 different people and uh, try to triangulate myself uh, what the actual situation is. Because at that stage, um, because things were falling apart, I, I couldn't even rely on the traditional information networks that I had. Um, so I, I got more information, uh, eventually decided to, to go to the airport, um, and I think that's where uh, uh, the events unfolded that, that everyone is aware of by now. When you're looking at the events from the outside, from abroad, the story tends to be very different from what it is on the ground. It took about 10 days for the country to fall. You mentioned before that it wasn't clear when the first cities came under Taliban control that the situation was going to end with the fall of Kabul. I'm wondering about the first few last days in terms of the information you had at your disposal to make decisions and how you were maybe subconsciously forecasting what the next few weeks or months were going to look like. Yeah, <clears throat> so I think it's, um, I want to clarify one point. So I'm, the situation didn't really start until 10 days before. You know, the the districts, the rural districts had been um, <clears throat> slowly being taken over by the Taliban for months prior to this period. And so there was a change. I guess the mistake that I and perhaps others made was to say, well, well, those are rural areas 
And so they're not going to be able to take over major cities. And so that, that therefore, the, um, uh, you know, the ability for them to take over um, many districts was discounted by myself. We put, put a lower weight to them and said, okay, well, that's not so important. And, and the same applied even when they began to take over uh, major cities. So the first city to fall was in Zaranj, which borders Iran. Uh, that's a smaller city of perhaps uh, less than 100,000 persons um, uh, located on, on the border with another country. And so the thought process is, well, that's a less important city. Um, let's not worry about that again. And, and so we discounted the fall of that city. And even as other cities fell, the government um, and the security sector indicated that this was part of a strategy to um, consolidate forces in major metropolitan areas rather than focusing on rural areas or smaller provincial capitals. And so even when those other cities began to fall, um, uh, you know, the thinking was, well, this is the security sector strategy to consolidate in major cities. And so we discounted those cities falling. And, and so, it, you know, it, we discounted until the very end until Kabul itself fell. And I think that was the error in thought process during that time. And I remember, so when Zaranj fell, I became worried, but um, let it go. Uh, that was on a Friday, I believe, August 6th. And then a number of provincial capitals in the north fell that week. And then by the following Thursday, so six days later, um, a number of important provincial capitals fell. And that got me very worried. Um, but even so, um, I, I thought the other major cities would have been protected. So as it was, uh, everything fell apart from that Thursday to that Sunday. Uh, so that's what, four days uh, between one another. I, I wonder, um, within those last four days where you are assessing the situation and you see a constant deterioration, do you start thinking about different steps that you need to make as in if I have to um, if I have to leave the country I can't allow the Taliban to get access to X or Y uh, systems tools assets uh, did, did you have did you go through a checklist uh, and you started working uh, towards that uh, how, how did that uh, I think it was less um, thinking through access uh, that they couldn't receive, but um, I think there's maybe maybe two issues. I was worried about um, the international reserve position uh, and our liquidity position, and also uh, about staff. Um, so, you know, I, I said on Thursday that. Um, major cities fell. Well, on Friday, we received the call um, that uh, dollar shipments, which was expected for that Sunday, wouldn't arrive. And so that would have introduced a large liquidity crunch. And so even within you know, those three days that remained, I was focused on resolving that liquidity issue. Um, you know, so, so still thinking medium term, right? My thought process was, well, uh, if we continue to move forward, uh, this liquidity crisis will cause an, uh, an economic crisis, which is which I was trying to avoid. So that was one issue those last three days that we worked heavily on, uh, even until the last day. 
And then the second issue was in terms of the staff uh, and the integrity of uh, the structure, um, institutional structure of the central bank itself. So there at that time, uh, I made some organizational changes um, so that I could push power uh, and responsibilities a little bit lower in the hierarchy. So I created a new position of CTO and appointed someone. I appointed two new deputies. I appointed uh, technical staff at the bank who I believed that if in the scenario where I would have to leave, that they would be able to continue uh, the management of the bank and so that um, it, it, w- it wouldn't be left leaderless in, in such a scenario. And th- those were my focus areas the last few days. What do you believe is going to be, or, or do you believe that the Taliban have, have the, the know-how and the resources to manage the economy going forward? And what would that look like in the context of the global system? And I was just kind of thinking about all of those developments that you guys were making in the previous months uh, in terms of mobile payments and developing um, and trying to get people access to to a bank account or a digital bank account and and payments in general. Um, Would they be able to take forward or uh, do something with that kind of infrastructure? Um, So I I think the way I think about that problem is, um, one, I think they've appointed a new central bank governor. He doesn't have a background in banking or finance. Uh, I believe he was part of uh, the Taliban Economic Commission. And so you're you're obviously going to have a um, a, a lowering of, of standards or for people with banking or finance backgrounds being able to to lead these institutions, and that's going to hurt um, the development of the sector and you know uh, the ability to manage the sector. So I think that's one. I think two is that um, some staff have already left, and the staff that remain tend to be uh, professionals with um, you know years of background who have been trained by you know IMF staff or other staff or who have done trainings abroad and so those are the people who tend to be educated and have other options so they they they're the ones who are probably most likely capable of finding a job in another country and so over time you're 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 probably looking at um, a reduction of capabilities as people leave the institution because salaries are lower, the economic situation isn't um, isn't good, and so that that's further going to I think reduce the capabilities. And the third issue is really that no matter who's in charge of the central bank or the staff, the economic situation has significantly deteriorated. So of course uh, we had. You know, more than nine billion at one time, getting close to ten billion in international reserves, which represents you know a year and a half, uh, perhaps of of uh, import coverage, and uh, with the freezing of the assets, that that amount has gone down to maybe you know two days import coverage ratio. Um, so wh- whoever is there is dealing with um, a, a much tougher economic situation that will be difficult to manage. And so putting all those three together, I think it's going to be a challenging environment moving forward. It's very interesting. Shmuel, we're coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests two questions. Um, The first one is, uh, can you recommend us a book? Uh, We're avid readers in the team, and we're always looking for new material. And the second 
question is, can you provide us with an example of uh, an outcome that went wrong due to bad process and not bad luck? Yeah. Um, so the, the book, um, I, I actually just did another podcast with the uh, author, uh, Frank Copian, I think, who wrote Silk Roads. Um, and so for any of your readers who are interested in a long-term view of Central Asia um, and the dynamics at play over centuries, I think that that's a great book um, that, that highlights some of those changes and, and yeah, maybe help base some of your readers um, into to long-term dynamics of, of, of that area of the world. Um, and in terms of decisions that ended with poor outcomes, um, uh, that's a tougher one, I guess, you know, the, 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 you know, I worked for years in Afghanistan, uh, trying to support the development of the state. Um, and obviously it's led to, a uh, the outcome is, is not a positive one. Um, so I, I don't know if that's too broad of a process or if you were looking for more of a specific process that led to a, a specific poor process that led to a poor outcome. Um, so um, maybe, maybe I'll think about that. I don't have one off the top of my head uh, that I could provide you. That's perfectly fine. Shmuel, thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for being part of the Better Perspective podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it's been a pleasure.